Welcome to another special edition of Sardisms, where Sard's Managing Director Kevin Monk speaks to Marcus Baugh, a locum GP and emergency physician about the new CIC, Public Money, Public Code. They speak about open source and what it means to them, the community, and what it could do for the NHS. In this episode, Kevin and Marcus throw out myths and bust them wide open, especially when it comes to the misconceptions around open source software. Let's talk about open source, because you just said that trees are an unstoppable force. Yeah. I kind of feel that people look at our open source movement and think, oh, that'd be nice. It'd be interesting to see if they succeed. And my mindset is this is inevitable. I just want to speed it up. Yeah. <laughs> Which is completely the flip of that idea that, oh, you might get open source one day in the NHS. And I'm thinking, no, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. The way that technology is everywhere else, it doesn't seem to exist in the NHS space and tech particularly. And I want to hurry it up yeah. because because it will be better. The future is coming. Be ready. It's not like the, the NHS or anybody else can avoid what is happening to tech. Open source just accelerates things because... It, the very simplest, you know, if you look at it from a completely utilitarian point of view, you can try before you buy, right? It, it, as a single feature, just to be able to try the full stack without having to actually invest any money in it is a really key feature. Yeah, that's actually happening right now. I've got a prime example of that. NHS ESR team taking out ESR wrapper and they're installing it. This isn't like some official project. They're just some techies inside the ESR team gone, oh, great, it's open source. We can go and yeah. have a look at and it. I bet they love and they've that. actually started doing it. They have no money's changed hands. There's no contract. It's just, oh, let's go and have a look and let's go and have a play with this thing. As you say, before any money. You know, and we haven't even got onto the real advantages of open source here. This is only nibbling at the surface, really. But it's it's a good entry point because I think it addresses a pain point that people otherwise do have with non-open source software. So they they want to try something. Well, let's let's put ourselves in a parallel universe. Say NHS shared business services have ESR and they decide that they uh, they want to put an API around it. What's their alternate strategy? Like you've made them an ESR wrapper. So great. They, they can actually just bang that on and try it out now. Okay. What's their options other than that if that doesn't exist? Well, they can start writing a business case now for the need for an a- API. And that's now going to take them about 18 months just because of the, the way that things work, right? So the tech people are going to be frustrated for a minimum of 18 months. Um, and then when they get the business case, right, I can guarantee what it'll say. It'll say it will make a marginal, almost sort of like, nah, sort of business case for, for an a- API because they will go to their stakeholders all of whom already managed to sort of cope with ESR the way it is. And there were two things that their stakeholders will be thinking. They'll be thinking, oh my God, don't change it. I can only just cope as it is because it's so bad, right? Number one. And they'll also be thinking, is this going to cost me more? Is this going to take it down for some... So the, the feedback will be, actually, we've, we've sort of embedded it craply into our existing workflows. And because we're also scared of change, we, we are going to tell you, no, mm. we don't want an API. Yeah. So they'll get do a stakeholder engagement exercise that will prove that they don't need the most obvious next step. Yeah, I will say, though, just to push back on that, um, I wrote a fairly snarky email to ESR saying, stop getting in our way while we're trying to do good things with you. 
And they quite rightly came back and said, you should have spoken to us. And what I have since discovered is that actually there are some really good people in that team. Yeah. And I think this is a, this is a good lesson to learn generally that there are often people who really do want the same things as you. They're, they're within a system and actually some of this stuff can help them achieve the goals that they want as well. Well, I absolutely agree with that. And it, it's not always people who stakeholders who are embedded in a system and they're happy with it. Okay. But I'm going to push back on your pushback right, go on in, a, in a slightly different way. Because what I think is because you approach them the way that it happened, you had already written a technical useful thing and you were I guess you were, you know, snarkily emailing them, but you were also on Twitter and stuff like that, right? When the conversation did start between you and SBS, it started between you and the correct people. Yeah, BSA, actually. BSA, sorry. Yeah. But it, what I think would have happened if you had contacted them up front, you would have been speaking to the wrong people in BSA. They would have been, uh, there would have been a comms team involved. There would have been uh, stakeholder people, project management, business analysts, lots of people who... I'm sure do good jobs in certain circumstances, but in this specific scenario, all they are doing is they are forming like a inhibitor rods, yeah, in the mm. nuclear fission reaction. They're getting in the way, to mix some metaphors, they're an insulator. They're getting in the way between you and the people you need to speak to at BSA. And I think that the conversation would have taken two years, whereas it actually took two days. Mm. So I would say, to some extent, you're right that there, there are great people in these organizations. But in order to establish a direct line of communication with those people, I think you've got to be disruptive from the outside first at the moment. And I wish it wasn't the case. I wish you could sort of ring up and get to speak to the right people straight away. But actually, it isn't my experience over the last 10 years that that's what happens. And in fact, somebody within NHS BSA said to me, go unnamed, you writing that snarky email actually really helped me because you yeah, made the case for the thing that I want to happen. And so that was ammunition for me to make the charge internally. But I will say specifically with the ESR team, I've had some really good conversations now with people at a senior level there who have really won me around both for their character and their attitude. And um, we, the champions of a bit of a revolution, need to be careful that we don't, um, push back against people who are actually natural allies of what we're trying to do here. It's definitely true. Yeah. 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 You want to win people over, but I think sometimes the, the engagement tactic can vary. Uh, but I always think that, you know, as soon as you get that first response, you switch into a very different mode of locution. You know, you become that polite person that, that you'd want to be speaking mm. to if you if if uh, if you were working in that organization as a developer or technical architect or whatever. So yeah. um, I think that's absolutely right. But getting back to open source and its sort of advantages, you know, that try before you buy thing is a huge feature. But then going on from that, you know, what other things fall out of the ability to use a piece of, um, of, of equipment, essentially a piece of engineering without having to license it every time on a per user basis? Well, a really great example of that is Docker. Docker could not exist in a world that has no free operating systems, right? End of story. So if you, the, the way that Docker works, and just to explain roughly what Docker is, Docker is a very lightweight form of a kind of virtual machine. So it's like you can have computers within computers and they're expressed in a kind of virtual form. Now, if you 
only have paid for operating systems, then when you open a new virtual Docker container type thing, uh, you've got to pay for the operating system that's in it. But the way that people use Docker now, they will instantiate or create a Docker container in order to run a piece of software, maybe only for a few minutes, and then they'll tear it down and they'll, they'll recreate a new Docker container whenever that's needed. Okay, and they're so convenient and lightweight to use that you can use hundreds, thousands, millions of Docker containers simultaneously. And that is how a lot of cloud architecture works now. So we are very familiar with talking about the cloud. What is the cloud made of when you actually go and look at what's actually happening? Well, there's a huge amount of containers, Docker containers happening yeah, there. I thought you were going to say cloud is just other people's computers. That's the it, that's the that's the joke version. But yeah. I'm going. What what are the other computer other people's computers operating systems? Well, they are container runtimes that have Docker in them, right? And they're running Docker or or Container D. But you cannot use containers for everything if you have to pay for each instance of the operating system. Imagine spinning up a million simultaneous Windows servers uh, because you've got a sudden surge of load on your big platform. And then later on, you decide, I only need half of them, so I'll shut down the other ones. Well, how, who, how do you sort out the Windows licenses? How do you, how do you bill for that? Like if you're, if you're Microsoft, I mean, do, do people pay a full license for that or do they just pay for the minutes they used or what? Now, because we have a free operating system, that is not a problem at all. So open source, the existence of a free open source operating system has actually created an entire way of running cloud. Mm -hmm. So this is where you start realizing that it is not optional. Op open source is coming and be ready. It's learn mm -hmm. how to use it. The idea that you can, uh, in a sort of King Canute way, just say, oh, well, I don't want any open source because I don't understand it. And therefore I'm not going to engage with it as an NHS or as an individual trust or as an organization it doesn't wash. You are already using open source, whatever size of organization you have. You just don't know it if you're not open source savvy enough to mm. detect it. I think this is myth number one that we need to bust is that open source is rare or quirky or unusual. Yeah. Even if you are not a software developer, even if you are not technical, you are using open source every day. And I don't just mean that it's a small part of the system that you're using, that it's like 10% or 5%. I actually mean it's like probably 90% of the internet. I mean, yeah. it varies the estimate, but most websites, most web applications that you use are built on a Linux operating system, which is an open source operating system. Most of the web is served from, from a Linux machine and people do not realize Using that. Using open source web servers as well. If you can find me a person who's paying for, an, for a web server, I can, find, I can point you to a complete fool. Yeah. Everybody is using Apache or they're using Nginx or they're using Caddy or something like that. There are no closed source. Options. Is that true even on IIS? I, I've never used IIS, which is a point in itself, right? I, I, I've been a techie my whole life. I've never actually used the Microsoft uh, web server technology. I have briefly, but I, I don't really know very much about it at all. I, I've never used any Windows web stuff, but yeah, I, I suspect IIS is probably quite tightly bound to Microsoft server. But I would also suspect, given the direction of travel that Microsoft have been going along, you know, buying GitHub, inventing TypeScript, uh, yeah. they, they are definitely 
very much pro open source. So I would have thought even their .NET yeah. types. They've had a real move, haven't they, in the last... Yeah, .NET Core, fully open source now. That was that happened a few years ago. So the whole world is shifting. So even your Microsoft sort of closed sourced stalwart type uh, approach is just just doesn't hold true anymore because Microsoft themselves are really pro open source and they've seen the light and they're moving in this mm. direction because they realize that you can't be static. You mm. also can't be spending money on things that your co- competitors are not spending money on. So if you know if you're paying for operating systems and paying for web servers, then that's money that your competitors are not spending. And you know how how are you going to win that war? This gets to myth number two. Yeah, well, for me, myth number two. That open source is free. Is is open source free? There's there's an organization called the Free Software Foundation Europe, and I love these guys. They've got the public money, public code.eu. Yep. We've spoken to them and said, look, we want to basically take your name, public money, public code. There it is. These are the stickers that they sent me. For the purposes of the tape, Marcus is showing stickers of the public <laughs> money, public code.eu website, um, who we've spoken to. They are advocates basically for uh, public money, public code, more generally, as as we are. But of course, we've got a UK UK lilt and specifically an NHS lilt. Yep. But we we've spoken to them. They're they're strong advocates of it. But that um, organization comes out of something called the Free Software Foundation Europe, and I love everything about them apart from that first F in their name because it all comes down to it's a little bit misleading in the sense that I think free in that concept means in terms of liberty exactly being liberal not free monetary this is all about the difference english uses the same word for what in other languages is distinguished between libre which is liberty and liberated and free as in free to roam or free to do you know to look at the code for example and gratis which is without cost. Okay. Mm. Now we only have one word, which we use for both things free. Okay. But in lots of other European languages, particularly, uh, they are distinguished between. So something that is libre is free in a, in a liberty sense. And that's what we mean by free software when we're talking about open source and people like Richard Stallman, uh, not the flavor of the month at the moment, for various other reasons, but uh, he has always made the distinction between freedom of cost and freedom of of the software. And the idea, the ideology behind the GNU project and, and, and Linux and things like that is that the actual code, there is a freedom to being able to examine the code. It's a freedom that the user has. And that's what all the open source licenses are about. So yeah, absolutely right. Open source is, is not free. So what I like to do is, is bring in an analogy of just other machines, right? If you say software's machine, it's engineering, right? Well, I, I don't know, look around the room. I can see uh, I've got a heater on the floor. Now that's a machine. It costs me money, but it's free in the freedom sense that I can take it to pieces, right? If I want to know how they made that, I've got a screwdriver and I can take it to pieces and I can understand every little bit of it's working. I could take the motor to bits and count the windings. I could uh, send away parts of it to be analyzed and I could then improve it or I could build a copy or something like that subject to, you know, the uh, patent law that might exist around it. But bearing in mind that lots of machines exist that have no 
um, existing patent because they've been around for so long. Yeah. We have to imbue some of that freedom in our software. And that's exactly what open source does. It means that when a technology that is software based uh, is open source, it means you've got the right to go and have a look inside, see how it works for a number of different reasons. And in healthcare, a particular reason we want to do that is because of safety. So we have the freedom to go and look inside and make sure it's working properly and safe. We have the freedom to update it and pass those result, those up, updates back to the originator. So we, in, you know, we all share the benefits of everybody looking at this code. We have the freedom to re-implement it and, and make improvements or just just re-implement it for the hell of it. You know, there are dozens of companies that make a heater. Do you think they all invented the heater? No, they bought a heater and they took it to bits and worked out how to make a heater. And mm -hmm. that is a fundamental freedom of all engineering, whether it's house building, bridge building, all those kind of things. We don't have it in software where the, so where the source is closed. And so actually open source is nothing new. This is not about adding some new weirdo feature to as an industry that was doing fine. This is about restoring a missing feature from a completely broken industry. Mm. Software is broken if you don't have access to the source code. And that's what that, that's why it incites such strong opinions is because obviously my view that it's broken is based on uh, the view of a clinician, the view of a technical person. But if I owned a massive software company, I might not think it was as broken as it is. You know, mm. it divides people on the basis of your capacity to benefit from the current state of affairs. So we've busted two myths. The first one, because it's not rare. Yes. First, it is not every rare. Android phone, every iOS phone has open source stuff in it. Every web server, all like 30% of the content management systems on the internet are WordPress, you know, so it's, it's not rare. It's very, very common. It's everywhere. In fact, it's the default really, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's rare for me to go to a piece of software these days and not sort of try to see where the code is because that is the standard for pretty much everything outside of healthcare. And that's what freaks me out is when, I, when I'm in healthcare and when I look at the health tech domain and someone says to me, can you connect to the system over here? That inability to inspect what the hell that system is doing or even to understand its functionality is the big barrier to me. It's not so much that I can contribute to that code even, it's, it's that I can't, yeah. I can't reason with it. I Absolutely. can't understand, I can't pick it up and look underneath it and look at the side and what's in that box and what if happens if I pull that string. And actually what you're alluding to there is another big reason why I think open source is, is coming of age now and is taking over. And that is because in the early days of Computing and the internet, which you know, I'll say is like you know, 1990 to about 2010. Having a piece of software was enough, right? So if you you could build whatever it was, some some closed source software like Photoshop or something like QuickBooks or whatever, and having a piece of software was all you were expected to do, really, and that worked fine with a proprietary closed source model. Where it starts to completely break down is when the modern world now expects you to go much further than that. Having a platform is only the start of your issues. You need to integrate it with all the other platforms. And that's where open source has a massive advantage because if you're integrating anything with anything else, being able to look at the code as a technical person is a monstrous advantage. You know, I've done quite a little discourse integration and, you know, discourse the forum is open source, which means that when I want to know how something's handled internally, 
and I want to know how I should approach the integration and go and have a look at the source code and I can see exactly how it all works. And you become inspired for your own projects, right? Like you'll, you will see how something is done and go, oh, that's interesting. I've got a great example of that. Uh, every, every software engineer listening to this, will, will, this will resonate with them. You go to a website sometimes and you can right click on the page and you can basically say view source and you can see what's going on in the HTML. So it's not yeah. totally open source, but you can roughly see yeah. how things are structured in that web page. And I did that with the coronavirus dashboard on .gov.uk. And actually, GDS are really good at, at yeah, opening yeah, up. They're... They are an exemplar, and actually, I keep banging the drum for them. But I really do think they're, they're an organization that this country should be massively proud of in the way they were with the Olympics or people getting gold medals. It should be like, wow, yeah, we've got this thing, and it went really well. Hugely impressive. But I was looking at the coronavirus dashboard, and I right-clicked, and I was like, how do they do their maps? What's the software they're using for the map system? It's got open a thing called Open Street Maps on there, where people contribute. In fact, uh, uh, created by a Kent man who's uh, younger than me, which is quite frightening. A Kentish man or a man of Kent? He is a Kentish man. It's all to do with whether you can see he's the, the other side of the Medway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's created. He created this. Uh, he was inspired himself by Wikipedia, which is another thing that you become inspired by these other projects and you go away and uh, you create on, on the shoulders of giants, essentially. Yeah. And that's, that's why I think myself and you, Marcus, are so passionate about this is because actually it just, it's good fun as well yeah. to be inspired by someone in the same way it is with music or art or film to look at what someone else has done and go, that's cool. Oh, what if I had tried that thing over here? Yeah. And instead of everyone building these things that are closed down proprietary systems where you can't see what the hell is going on over here, and essentially you're all spending money. My company, Saad, are building a rostering system, and it is closed source at the moment. Um, it is our intention with public money, public code to open that up. And actually, there is some hypocrisy in me running a company called Saad that's about public money, public code, yet all of our source code is closed. And um, I'll, <laughs> actually, I'll cover it now. I wish we had taken a different route. I really do. And if, you, if there was a button on the desk now that said, make everything open in all of your software, I don't think it would affect our bottom line as a company one iota. Like it would make no mm. difference because I don't believe that our clients fundamentally care that it's open source. The benefit is not direct. It's indirect. It's a huge benefit to the client, but it's an indirect benefit. And I think maybe that's why at the point of procurement that this is, this is a, well, does it do what I need? Does it solve yeah. my problem? But actually, a company that's that's gone in with an open source mentality should be in a, in a healthy ecosystem a massive advantage because they're building on on the work of others and and an interoperability. And I would I would hit that button. In your defence, that were you to be, you know, the world's changed a lot, and it sort of even five years ago, the attitude towards open source was a lot more suspicious than it is now. And I think that's why public money, public code is kind of, it's the, it's the time for PMPC now because attitudes have changed. Five years ago, if you had had uh, a, a, an e-rostering platform that was open source, 
I do wonder whether there would have been some people who would have sort of sniffed around it in a bit more of it. They would want to sort of kick the tires and ask you some questions suspiciously because they don't understand. It could it. have been a negative feature. It could have been, we don't want that because it's open source. Whereas yeah. I think now it's, it's kind of a parity. Can I bust another myth? Yeah. Uh, the myth is that I've had even quite technically savvy people say to me, well, it doesn't open source mean that anyone can change your code. And I, at this point, I'm slightly disbelieving. It's like, you can't possibly think that, but then, you know, take them in through it. And it's like, they actually do think that just anyone can change the running code on my system. So I think it's important to say, no, open source does not mean that anyone can change your code. It means that anyone can take a copy of your source code and they can change that copy. Mm. And that's fundamentally different. So I can take a copy of any piece of open source code. So like I talked about discourse, right? I could take a fork as it's called of discourse and I can do my changes to that for my own purposes if I want. If I want to, I can offer those changes back to discourse the team and they might say, yeah, this is great. Mm, that's called a pull request, right? I could make a pull request, yeah. Mm. And, and they might go, yeah, we want that. So, uh, but of course they will have, I know for a fact that discourse have got very high standards. So the pull request is not enough. I would have to sign their um, contributed covenant, which is about um, assigning the IP over to them, which is perfectly reasonable because they've got a business built on it and they, they don't want to have to exert a different bit of copyright for the bit that I wrote. They want it all to be owned by them. So there's legal stuff, there's code quality stuff. So I've got to pass their tests and I've got to make sure that they test coverage of my new bit is is up to scratch and stuff. So there's a whole load of safeguards. So open source does not mean that just any old Tom, Dick and Harry can change the code that's running in a hospital, for example. What it does mean is that dozens of other clinicians could take a copy of that code and make dozens of improvements and share those back to the project, which means we all get dozens of features uh, and, and the project accelerates way quicker than you could do in a proprietary world. Because in a proprietary world, to get a dozen new features, you've got to find money. Mm. There's a bottleneck here because the development team who run the software, this closed source platform, they've only got a certain amount of time. So it doesn't matter how much money you come up with. If you know, We see in example of the British GP system suppliers, they are inundated with change requests and improvements. And it's not about the money. It's about their capacity to add new features. Mm. If they were all open source, well, to some extent, the community could add some of those features. If the, if the actual owner of the code doesn't have time, you could say, well, we're going to pay for this feature to be added. We'll give you a pull request later. And mm. then you can choose to have it, you know, add it in, have it if you want. So it solves a problem about how do you get more features in less unit time? Yeah. This dovetails nicely into myth number four. It's for hippies and people with open-toed sandals. And, and it's not for commercially hard-nosed people. Yeah. I mean, we can attack that on, on a different few different levels. But I mean, there are lots of commercial hard-nosed companies now that basically only use open source. Look at some of the stuff that's happening around Amazon Web Services. A lot of the things that they provide are basically just open source things, um, open source tooling, open source databases, all kinds of stuff as a service, for example. So there's, it's a real honeypot of, of ways, to, ways to make money. And then could it, on the other end, we could 
you know, attack it. The, the, you know, the some of the biggest advocates of open source have don't actually own any open toed sandals. I mean, I don't. Do you? I have some. I have some socially acceptable action sandals. You know those kind, the kind of Velcro yeah. Merrill type things. Yeah. But I, I, I'm given to understand that they are sanctioned by normal people, and it's it doesn't indicate any kind of left leaning. It is a broad church, isn't it? I mean, I am really, to be honest, a red in tooth and claw capitalist with a soft lefty bent, I think, from my family upbringing. But I'm a mixture of those things. And I'm well into this. There are people who, <laughs> who are every shape and shade yeah. and political leaning who, who can be into this. I, You can base a... People can and do base a commercially viable company yeah. on these principles as well. If you Google the words open source venture capital, you will get a number of companies that do just open source venture capital. Now, if there was no way to make money out of open source and no prospects, and it was completely anti-capitalist, then there wouldn't be any such thing as an open source venture capital company, would there? No. Nope. But there are. That's how Discourse got fu- uh, funded. Yeah. I mean, um, Tesla, Tesla are good on this in terms of their patents. Uh, it's not quite open source as such. I guess it is. They, in fact, they even call it the open source philosophy. Um, maybe I could just read out something here that Elon mm. Musk put. He said, at Tesla, however, we felt compelled to create patents out of concern that the big car companies would copy our technology and then use their massive manufacturing sales and marketing power to overwhelm Tesla. We couldn't have been more wrong. The unfortunate reality is the opposite. Electric car programs or for any vehicle that doesn't burn hydrocarbons, the major manufacturers are small to non-existent, constituting an average of far less than 1% of their total vehicle sales. Technology leadership is not defined by patents, which history has repeatedly shown to be small protection indeed against a determined competitor, but rather by the ability of a company to attract and motivate the world's most talented engineers. We believe that applying the open source philosophy to our patents will strengthen rather than diminish Tesla's position in this regard. Nice. So that is, to me, in far as I'm concerned, that's a hard-nosed business decision that says yeah. this, this is the sort of place where engineers want to work, which which is true. I mean, if you are a car engineer and Tesla say, come and work with us, that's, that's, that's going to be a good thing. It's about as good as you can get, isn't it? Yeah. But it is partly just to strengthen that company. It, that, that is a yeah. strategic competitive facade. It is a strategic competitive decision to go public money, public code. I also think it's the right thing to do, and it's a more fun thing to do. But I think it is a good, I think it's a good business yeah. strategy for us, and I think it's a good business strategy even for our competitors, yeah, um, to join along with us and be part of that more collaborative community. It's a huge opportunity, and and it's what I say to any companies that ask for my advice about getting into the NHS, which is seen as a very difficult thing. And, and it probably is. I mean, it is a very difficult thing to get a you know, new market entrant into anything. But one of the first things I'll tell them is your ninja move here, if you really have got the balls for it, is to be open source. Because your problem as a new market entrant, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Corey Doctorow here, because uh, he, he has talked about this in pretty much the same words. Your problem is your unknown. It's, your problem is obscurity. Your problem is not IP theft. No one's going to try and take your platform mm. because at the moment you're unproven, but you have this problem of obscurity. Now, if you want to make a big splash in the NHS world, go open source. Talk about open source endlessly. Show your code. Improve your code constantly. 
open source every little bit of it from the first commit. Don't have one of these kind of things. Well, we're going to open source it on the you know the the first of August when we when we're completely happy with you know we've we've got everything done because it's never done. This is engineering. You're improving something all the time and be transparent. And just by the act of being transparent, you have demonstrated a feature which cannot be replicated by your competitors. Right. So even before you've actually gained a toehold in whatever part of the NHS you're trying to provide services for, you've already got a feature that no one else can copy. Mm. And that is just such business sense. If it, For the people who understand and can buy into that, they will immediately see the benefits and just go, well, th- this is a no-brainer. We absolutely have to do this because we want to punch above our weight in the NHS. That's the way to do it. And if you are particularly skilled and you know the domain better than anyone else and all these things is actually the thing that differentiates you from your from your competition by basically pushing out and making the tech stack generic there are many many companies that are building rostering systems in the nhs at the moment we've got many many competitors Mm. that are all trying to build the same thing and i just imagine everyone coming to work every day and a software engineer in our company building this and a software engineer in another company that's a competitor building this. And I just think what incredible heat and friction is created by us butting our heads together. And that's not because I, you know, I want to play nicey nicey with it. Some of these, some of these companies are horrible. <laughs> They're not necessarily nice people. Some of them are also lovely, but it's not about, I don't know, let's all, let's all play nicely in the middle sort of thing. It's the, that's just an incredible waste of the client's money. And if we are essentially participating on the same thing in the center, then where I do want to compete, which is things like customer support, knowledge, the fact that our, our software engineers have been with us for you know a good while and they, they understand the domain really well, all of those sorts of things actually start to become a massive advantage on top of the thing that would be generic to everyone else. So some other company coming along and grabbing that open source right, rostering system, the way to beat us uh, at that game is to come along and do better, but not necessarily on the source code, but to do better in how they improvise, how they create plugins, how they... Yeah. And that's, that's good for everyone. You're competing on service and it creates a market where you've got options about who you get your service from, because that that's another thing that closed source models monopolize is so they don't just monopolize your um, access to the product, but then it's the after sales and and the uh, service that essentially are also monopolized to some extent. So if you need uh, support services, you end up having to directly pay whichever big company you've, you've purchased the system from. And if they aren't providing you with a service level that you're happy with at a price you're happy with, you have zero options there. Whereas let's say you've gone open source with your website and you've built, you've used WordPress. Uh, you have the choice of literally tens of thousands of WordPress houses in the UK and internationally, and you can choose them on the basis of whatever criteria suits you. Yeah. So how good the graphic design is or, yeah. or you might go for cheapest or you might go for most expensive, or you might go for a feature set or, or you know, how much will they do for you without you having to know anything technical others, mm will let you do a bit of the technical stuff in re- in return you know they don't have to do it so it's a bit cheaper you know you can pick your point and that's the it's the choice 
that it gives you. It's, com- it's competition, just like the yeah. one where you're all competing, trying to build the same product. It's still competition. It's yes. just, it's not a zero sum game competition. It's a competition where the pie gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Explaining that though, to, to people who don't necessarily really get it can be quite um, disheartening because I think, you know, one of the areas, speaking of part of the NHS that I know quite well, which is GP system suppliers and um, competition. So we, we've got quite a small existing market and the GP system uh, suppliers have had that market for 20 odd years. And over that time, there've been fewer and fewer in the market to the point where we really only have two main players. And there's been a desperation for at least seven, eight, nine years, maybe more to get new entrants to that market. However, it's quite difficult to get new entrants to that market. But there is more than one type of competition if you see what I mean, mm. they are seeing competition as purely product. So NHS Digital have spent immense amounts of effort. And I, you know, I do, I applaud them for the efforts they've put in to try and get new market entrants to come along with a new mm. product. But because we're fundamentally dealing with proprietary closed source stack, even though the NHS has paid for the building of them in its entirety many times over by now, uh, we still don't own that code. So we're still paying for the product. Whereas if we had taken a different approach on this and said, well, we want to own the code, uh, you're, you know, you're building it for us, but we'll own it. Then we would now be able to compete on services, on plugins, on development additions. Mm. It would be a totally different world. And of course, and I also don't think there would be a problem. If there were two open source GP systems, we wouldn't have a competition problem that market would be perfectly functional. It's only dysfunctional because we have two closed source proprietary systems at the mm. top of that market. Funnily enough, you know, that's how I joined in with, the, with NHS IT. I turned up at an NHS hack day once and said, wouldn't it be great if there was an open source GP system? And then you know, I took the red pill and I'm still here. <laughs> once you're in. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time talking to people at NHS Digital, NHS England about open source GP systems. And this is eight years ago, nine years ago, when really a couple of hundred thousand pounds invested back then probably would mean that they would have something to show for now. Yeah, They would have with that lead time and a little bit of seed funding, we could have had an open source GP system. And yet we go around this groundhog day thing. Every five years, there's a re-procurement. They panic, but so usually someone will phone me up. And they'll say, oh, what do you think about an open source GP system? Do you think that would happen? And I say, yeah, it could happen. You'd need to pay mm. some money and we'll get a team together and we'll start building something. Mm. And then they go away and they never come back. And then five years later, they wish they had, but no one's mm. got the balls to invest. And that's no. what public money, public code is about really, isn't yeah. it? It's about changing that ecosystem, the environment. Because there, there is a, an approach that I see that's very common that looks a bit like the open source approach, but I think is completely wrong-headed which is to over-commoditize what the product is in the center and say, I know what we'll do. In order to create a, a competitive marketplace, we'll specify exactly what that thing is. So it's going to be this shape. It's going to have these connections on it. It's going to have this interoperability. And then basically lots of companies can produce that widget and then they'll just, they'll just compete to build that widget in the middle. Yeah. And, but the trouble with that is that it makes it hyper-competitive to build that widget and you end up with a really perverse incentive where 
it basically comes down to price and they've got no way to differentiate themselves yeah. with the rest of the market. Absolutely no way at all. That It seems similar. It sounds like the same thing as the open source thing, but it's actually the complete flip of it. And it means that nobody yeah. then wants to, because it's just a, it's just a horrible place to be. It's a, it's not an inviting place to create a business because you, you cannot, when we turn up and do a, a tender for, for a project in a trust, and it has a hard spec and it basically says, you know, here's all the features that we need and we're going to be looking at you and, you know, five other companies that are all trying to compete with the same thing. It's really hard to actually show them the value that you have outside of that because it becomes this apples to apples comparison. Yeah. And so the fact that you don't look like an apple for some reason, which may be an advantage and maybe your huge advantage. The fact that you don't look like the current way of doing things means that you are put at a disadvantage. It, it's a really peculiar yeah. perverse incentive, but I, I can see the allure of it, but it's really, really common. It's a thought disorder. It's it's a mental trap, isn't it? That they, they've got themselves in. And, and what you've just, just described is exactly what GP system uh, specification looks like. It's really prescriptive. They've attempted I mean, they've done an incredible amount of work to try and bring the specification from everywhere it was sort of scattered all over the four winds of documents and things. And they brought it all together in one big, massive confluence site. And you can go on there and you can learn everything you need to know about what is required of your GP system. And that's the basic. Like you've got to do all that before you can even differentiate yourself with nice features or better Mm -hmm. customer support or more responsiveness, or even features that are not in that spec, but should be like, well, our system, we've, we've built a mobile app and we've built a tablet app and we, you know, we, we've got a, an open API that means that anybody who signs up to our developer mm. pr- program can, can build an integration in an afternoon. Those things are not specified so tightly in there because th- they're stuck as well. Cause not only whilst when you're building a spec like that, you've got two things you're trying to get into it. One is I want to specify what we already have. So you're trying to build a specification that that is uh, accords with the systems you can buy. Otherwise, you you know yeah. it would make no sense if you built a specification. And they're described by. I mean, we are we're part of a supplier reference group for NHS England. You know, it's basically all of the current suppliers sitting around a table and try and work out a spec that looks like their systems. Mm. Because why would they? <laughs> why would they help specify something that doesn't look like what they already provide? That's it. So they they specify something that looks like their current systems, and that's what we've got. But you also want to have a bit in there about that's about the future, about things that you'd want to see in the next version of these systems. And you can't really get them both into one document, but that's kind of what's been attempted. So it means that we have neither one nor the other. We don't really have like an aspirational view of what a GP system could be in the future in those specs. Uh, but we, So we've got a very pedestrian sort of lowest common mm. denominator view of what, what can work. Whereas yeah. imagine if we did it differently and all suppliers to this market were basically supplying one of two open source GP systems, then we wouldn't need a specification at all because the specification would be the software. And it would be evolving constantly. We'd just go say, well, the, the spec, the feature set is the feature set of these systems, right? Yeah. And now you're competing. You, all the stuff that you would put in any specification would be around service level, would be around you know uptime guarantees, would be around uh, latency, would be around... Uh, feature set. Mm. It'd be a problem-based specification, yes. right? Like not not 
proposed solution. And I'm bang on about the Tesla again. Sorry. When someone gets Tesla, they kicked about oh. it. <laughs> you proud Tesla owners, you have to tell us all about it. Go on. But when you when you go to, when you go to get insurance and things, it's really obvious how all of these systems are built for the idea that it's not an electric car. It's like, what's the gearbox, and um, you know, what's the immobilizer? Well, it's Tesla's got a pin on it. It's like you can put a pin on the screen when you get in and then the engine doesn't turn on or the, the model of what a car is, has completely changed. And actually that is the advantage of the car is that, is that it's really simple. It's got a battery, a motor and a computer. And it's so, so simple. Now, if someone was writing a specification for a car 10 years ago, they might say, well, what's the cam belt? Is it, is it got a rubber cam belt or has it got a, a chain cam belt that doesn't you know snap as often, but a bit more noisy? Oh, we want the metal one because they're, they're more reliable. And then Tesla come along and they're competing for their NHS buy a car yeah. specification. It goes, what cam belt have you got? We haven't got one. We haven't got one. <laughs> you know, and what incentive is there for yeah. them to come along with a version of something that just doesn't have a cam belt at all? That's right. But in the procurement spec, because... People are terrified of making a procurement decision and getting sued later on for you know having not selected uh, a company. Uh, so they they do very structured questionnaires, don't they, to all the to all the suppliers. So you you mm. put in your tender and you say it will say you know there's a maximum of um, ten points available for your cam belt design. It's like well we don't have a cam belt. Oh, or we, we just have to put zero then. It's like well yeah. so you're going to mark us down for being so advanced that we don't need a cam belt. Yeah, yep. that's what we're going to do because otherwise we'll get sued by, you know, whatever company loses when mm. we appoint you and you didn't have a cam belt and they'll say, well, your your spec was very clear about this. So you can see how we're sort of breaking our own brains here, aren't we? You know, I completely believe that everybody involved in procurement of GPP systems are trying to do a really good job and they just want it to work and they want to buy the best stuff. And yet somehow in, in the sort of committee think... And, and this is not a single committee. This is dozens of committees going all the way from, you know, your GP right down to the system suppliers and back again. It gets broken. We don't yeah. end up with what we want. Yeah, there are, there are definitely system suppliers that believe in that kind of commoditized approach as well. well partly because it suits them, but also because yeah. I think it is a natural human failing, <laughs> to be honest, to fall into that mental trap. It's an easy mental trap to get into, to go, oh, I can specify exactly the solution to the problem I have now, if I just make that this shape here, you know, then anyone can come along and this is the bit of the jigsaw puzzle in my systems that I need. Can you supply that? Yes or no? You know, Cause it makes it really simple. And it's, it's such an alluring idea. It yeah. completely backfires. And when, when we talk about open source and advocate for open source, it's kind of seen as a nice have on top. But it's not. It's actually fundamental to, as you say, having that kind of evolving specification of having someone to come along and go, actually, the open source system that's out there is the specification. You don't need yeah. some document at the center to say what it is. It is constantly evolving. And it's probably worth saying as well that actually one of the other things that happens in open source projects is that people don't always fork them or even add to them. Often they're inspired to create their own completely different framework on top yeah. that sits next to it that is completely unrelated. And I can see that happening multiple times. So they, they switch languages, 
There was a, a Moodle uh, learning management system that was built in PHP. I think that was based on a system called Blackboard, which was, I think, a lockdown proprietary system. And they they looked at some of the features of that. They built their own ones. But, you know, there's always a bigger fish. And another company's come along now and built the Canvas LMS, which is a Ruby-based open source system, which didn't fork off of the uh, Moodle one because it's a completely different language and just yeah. looked at it, presumably, and went, oh, it's got that feature, but we want to do it slightly differently here. Yeah. And often that happens. There's a lot of, there are a lot of frameworks out there. There are a lot of open source projects, but they're still learning from each other. And, and, and they will say at the top of the project, it will say this was inspired by. Yeah. In the rest of the engineering world, that's just so normalized that we don't even we don't even talk about it. Like if you buy a bike frame and you think, God, you know, this bike frame would be great. You know, you buy an aluminium bike frame. It's perfectly understandable that another company might build a similar looking bike frame out of carbon fiber, just mm -hmm. a different material, different building material. And that's the same as, you know, porting something from PHP to Ruby. You're just using a different building material that you're more familiar with, that you think has advantages to build the same product. But fundamental is being able to inspect that product being able to yeah. take it apart and have a look at it and sort of say, well, you know, we can, there are elements of this that we can take. And one thing that open source does mean, okay. And this is a, this is gonna, this, this is what upsets some people is that, and there's no, I'm not even going to attempt to try and sort of justify this is that you can't, you can no longer invent one piece of software and take money for selling that piece of software for the rest of your life. You've got mm. to continually innovate in order to continually take money. Because in open source, you've, you've got to be developing the next feature. You've got to be building the next thing. But that's what users want. That's what patients want. That's what clinicians want. They want the stuff to get better. Mm. The reason we've got stuck is because the feature set that we currently have was really baked in in about the late 90s, early 2000s to lots of the NHS software. Uh, I'm speaking specifically about GP systems, but you could pick anything. Mm. What I mean is that just like in the physical engineering world, say you do invent a faster bike wheel, right? A, a wheel that just is aerodynamically faster, right? For a period of time, you can patent that. But as soon as it's out of patent, there mm. are going to be people making the same thing at lower cost using their volume. Uh, and they're, they're going to they're going to undercut you, or it becomes essentially commoditized, and it's like a normal thing. Mm. So you need a new idea, but hopefully, if you're that good, you will have a new idea by then. Mm. So you are constantly at the cutting edge, and there are copycats five years, ten years behind you that you don't have to care about because by then you've moved on to the next thing. And yeah. um, what you can't do in open source is create a very basic system like a GP system, core, core GP systems, and what they do. And then just stop. It's definitely a red, red queen yeah. effect, right? Yeah. This is about the myth, myth busting open source. So I've written down here that it's rare because it's not. These are the myths that it's rare, that it's free, that, you, that pe other people can change your code, that it's for hippies. There's another myth, which is that commoditization thing, which is the, the advocates that are like, well, we, want, we don't want open source, we want open platforms. I think that's what they're saying. They're like, yeah. We want to. We want an open specification. We want to describe why, and like you, you get that from open source. You... Open source is is like music. Do you want to hear the song, or do you want someone to write a specification of that song and allow a number of different competitors to write a similar song? Yeah, because 
you don't want to hear the last one. Well, we're definitely singing from the same hymn sheet. We are. And then there, there was some bonus benefits, which is uh, you try before you buy, that you're inspired, that it's actually more secure. Yeah. It's a good chat, mate. Yeah, cool. If you're interested in joining the community interest company, Public Money, Public Code, or even just to show your support, visit publicmoneypubliccode.org.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at PubMoneyPubCode and use hashtag Public Money, Public Code. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.